scripture for today will be from Matthew chapters, uh, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. This is a common parable I'm sure many of you have heard. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus replied, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had with him, and payment to be made unto his debt. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay all that I owe thee. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all that I owe. And he would not, but went out and cast his fellow servant into prison till he should pay the debt. So when the fellow servants saw what was done, fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto the Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me. Should you not also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one of his brother their trespasses. So, imagine that as a child, you were issued a large cert backpack that you were to wear at all times. At first, you didn't know what it was for, but then the adults around you started putting rocks in it. And after a while, you'd follow their example, and you found rocks to put in it. And I hear that church is a really good place to find rocks to put in it. Sometimes you pull the rocks out and you look at them. In they don't make you happy. In fact, they make you miserable. Some at the very bottom you never pull out. You might not even remember that they're there, but you still have to carry them around. And this seems inexplicable. Why would anyone voluntarily carry that kind of burden? <laughs> 
Unfortunately, these rocks in the backpack that you bear are not chunks of granite. They would be easy to get rid of. So this is a grudge. This is a grudgeette. But if you add enough grudgeettes, it still makes your backpack heavy. They add up. They are bits of residual resentment, hatred, anger, guilt, and shame. For the injuries and injustices or mistakes that you can't or won't or haven't let go of. Your backpack is your mind. And the weight of the load burdens not only your back, but your soul. Jesus promised us, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So many of us carry around extra weight because we have not learned how to let it go. We are repeatedly told, you must forgive. You need to forgive. God will only forgive you if you forgive others. But how many of us has, have ever been taught how to forgive? That when we come across a really hard situation and we try, but it just will not resolve, what do we do then? When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he gave them a model prayer, and he gave them a basic outline of what they were to pray on a regular basis. We are slowly working through the Lord's Prayer together, and today we will consider Matthew 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Now, this verse is really sobering for two reasons. The first is the realization that we are all debtors. We, not a one of us in this room, is spiritually debt-free. We are all in debt as we stand before a God who loves us and loves every other human on earth, but is holy just and good and sees every single thing we do and knows every single thought we think. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It also says that there is no one righteous, no, not one, and that the wages of sin is death. So every one of us in this room would face eternal death if it were not for the incredible grace and forgiveness offered us by the death of Jesus Christ. So here's the point. God does not owe us anything. Anything. We may think we can make demands on him, but in reality... He owes us nothing, and we owe him everything. If you look back at Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, this is the direct context of the Lord's Prayer. These are the next two verses when the Lord's Prayer is finished. 
And this is what it says. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. How does that verse make you feel? Anybody feel a little insecure? (laughs) Because you know how you struggle in your heart to forgive. You know how hard it is. Here is the kicker. And the point that I want you all to go home and think about. Maybe not just this afternoon, but for a long time. This verse seems to indicate that our forgiveness from God is somehow dependent upon our willingness to forgive others. So, should we be motivated to forgive? Just about as motivated as we are to do absolutely anything else in our life? Is forgiveness that important that our eternal salvation might depend on it? Is it worth the struggle if it doesn't come easily? Absolutely. Well, Peter must have been struggling to forgive one of those other 12 disciples, 11 disciples, because one of them might have been leaving a mess or saying stupid thing or getting in his face and calling him out. Living with 12 other guys 24-7 for three years must not have been easy. It gave these disciples constant opportunity to put the principles that Jesus was teaching them into practice. And some of these guys were really pieces of work. Just read the things that they say in the Gospels and you realize what pieces of work they were. Well, this unnamed disciple must have offended Peter again. So Peter is honestly contemplating how long he has to put up with this behavior. The classic rabbinic teaching was that you had to forgive the same offense from the same person three times. The rabbi says, if a man commits the offense once, forgive him. If he commits the offense a second time, forgive him. But if the man commits the offense for a third time, you don't have to forgive him. The fourth time, oh, third time they forgive him, the fourth time they do not have to. Well, Peter knows that Jesus is merciful and gracious, so he decides that he'll just do a little um, creative math. He doubles the number, and he adds one. Seven is the number of perfection. Now, certainly seven is the number of times that we have to forgive someone. So Peter engages Jesus with a question, and he's anticipating that Jesus is going to be so proud of him. He's going to give him that affirmation for being so spiritually mature and so generous to forgive seven times. So Matthew 18, 21, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? But Jesus' response blows Peter away. Because he says, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. 
Well, when I taught this lesson to the juniors, I had Brent Byers get out his calculator, and we started really doing the math on all of this. 490 times is quite a few times to have somebody do the same thing. So does that mean that we need to get out our journals and make little hash marks? Or might it mean that forgiveness requires perfection to the 10th degree times perfection? Let that sink in for a moment. The goal of perfection is perfection infinity times infinity. Lewis Donaldson puts it like this. Forgiveness must be beyond counting. Forgiveness just becomes absolute. It's what Christians do, right? Oh, how we wish. When Jesus says forgive 70 times 7, he's not saying count it, measure it, record it, keep a track of it, and warn that guy when he hits 489 that his chances are up. He's saying forgive limitlessly. Whenever you need to forgive, just do it. And when you think you've already forgiven more than is reasonable and rational, just keep forgiving. Jesus could see the confused look in Peter's eyes. So he tells a parable to illustrate this principle. And he says, there once was a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. And he became aware that a man owed him 10,000 talents. Now, how much is a talent? Do any of you know how much talent is worth? One ancient source tells us that a talent is worth 15 to 20 dash. 15 to 20 dash? Does that mean 15 to 20 minutes? 15 to 20 hours? 15 to 20 days, weeks, months, it's 15 to 20 years of work. That's how much a talent is worth, and that's crazy. So how much do you make in 20 years? With interest accrued, too, of course. If each talent is worth 15 to 20 years of work, after 80 years, how many talents have you earned? Four. After 80 years, a lifetime of a common laborer, they could earn, if they weren't spending it on anything for their daily living expenses, they'd have four talents. That means that after working his whole life, if this man who owed 10,000 talents gave every single penny to the king, not keeping one thing back for himself or the needs of his family, he would still owe the king 9,996 9, talents. Yikes. Talk about debt. 10,000 talents would be worth 200,000 years of wages. It was a debt that this man could never repay. It's more like U.S. debt, 
government debt, right? It's on the scale that just blows us away. It's a debt that is not repayable. So the master orders this man and his wife and his kids and his house and his investments, his cars, his furniture, his radio-controlled airplane, everything he owned to be sold. But even then, what were his chances of getting out of slavery? Zip. But the servant falls on his knees and begs for mercy. What else could he do? He begged, be patient with me and I will pay you everything back. Right. There was no human way that this man could pay everything back. He was in a serious case of denial. But the king, who was graciously, incredibly gracious, he took pity on him, and he canceled the debt and let him go. It's okay. I'll eat it. The king represents God. In the parables, the king always represents God. And when the debt of our sins were piled so high that even 200,000 years of good works couldn't even start to pay, he canceled the debt. And he said, paid in full. He wrote it off. Or did he? You see, debt is never just written off. When it is canceled, it means the one to whom the money was owed has eaten it, has taken that debt now upon himself. He's absorbed the cost and the weight of that debt to let the debtor go free. The Greek word used most often for forgiveness is aphiomi, which means literally canceling a debt. Do you know that? That's what forgiveness is, is canceling a debt. It means to set free, to let go, to release, to discharge and liberate. To let the person who has this backpack full of rocks be able to finally put the backpack down and go free. Every world religion tells you, you must pay. Earn God's favor. Because they do not understand, and they do not see the enormity of humans' debt before God. We owe so much, we could never pay it. We are all the ones who owe God 10,000 talents. Only the Bible, God's word says, this is not a book who says, you must pay. This is a book that says, Jesus paid it all. Every penny of it, he paid it all. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says that Jesus is our redeemer, the whole idea of someone who is a redeemer is someone who comes along and pays the debt so someone else can go free. Every time you sing, 
Praise to your Redeemer. Behind that is the story of someone who absorbed it for you so you would not have to pay. We are saying that Jesus paid the debt we owed so he could go free. It didn't just disappear. Jesus took it, and he paid for it with his own life. So the last ver- line of the song that was, they were singing for us, it says, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. This is what I know with all my heart. So 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 tells us, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life. Silver or gold would have been so much easier for God to give. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he paid our debt with his blood. He paid the debt of death that we deserved for our sins. He paid it all. He paid it in full. Okay, so that's background information to this story, that when the king forgave this guy 10,000 talents, he paid for it himself. Jesus isn't finished with the parable for Peter, so the story goes on, and it takes an unbelievable turn because this guy that has just been forgiven that huge amount of debt goes out, and he finds a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. Now, a denarii is what a common laborer would be paid for one day of work. So this is three months' worth of wages that is owed. The one that it had been forgiven grabs his colleague and he begins to choke him. What a wonderful debt-collecting way. But it shows the ferocity with which he comes at his colleague. He was ruthless and merciless. And he demands Pay back what you owe me. Now, why would someone who had been treated so graciously as to have millions, maybe trillions of dollars of debt written off, be so demanding with another person that owed just a few thousand dollars? Why would he act that way? I think the hint of this is found in verse 6, because this servant still was trying to pay back what he owed. This servant was trying to scrape together money that he could give to the king to put against his debt. He didn't really believe he'd been forgiven. He was still frantically trying to earn his own way, and the debt was astronomical. Because he didn't comprehend the grace he'd been given, he did what legalistic, ledger-based, everything-must-be-fair, living in complete denial of what they really owe, humans do. When we try to earn our salvation, we get mean. Maybe you all haven't discovered that. 
But I know lots of us, when we're trying to earn it, when we haven't received grace, we cannot give grace. And this man had been given grace, but he had not accepted it. He had not comprehended the love of God toward him, even as it was so incredibly offered. Well, in verse 29, the poor debtor, the second guy, falls on his knees and begs, and he uses exactly the same words as the first man has used. And the bell should be going off for the first guy saying, wait a minute, I was in this place not long ago. I should have mercy and compassion on this poor man. But in this case, he didn't. There was no mercy. Instead, that first unforgiving servant went off to have his colleague thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, I've always wondered how they can pay off debt if they're in prison. But the prisons in those days were actually, it was slavery, where they would be having to work and their taxes would be taken, and their, their wages would be taken to pay off the debt. Okay, so now the second man is in prison for a very small debt. And the other people who are watching this, and they've seen the entire story unfold, including how much the first guy owed, and they were just a little bit upset. The Bible says they were greatly distressed. Isn't that the way we all feel when somebody's mean when they have no right to be? When someone picks and just is going beyond what really is reasonable as they go at a brother or sister. So, here's the wake-up call for us, all, each of us. When we go at anybody, when we pick at anybody, when we demand things from anybody, we are like that unjust, unforgiving servant because we've been forgiven so much. Whatever we've been given, we need to pass that grace on to the people around us. So the king called that first debtor in, and he called him, you wicked servant. I hope that I never hear those words out of Jesus' mouth toward me. You wicked servant. But I know if I am not forgiving, this is what he might say to me. You wicked servant. And then he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. And I love this verse. It says, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? I was so good to you. I was so kind to you. I absorbed everything you owed. Why can't you just do the same? What an incredible question. And maybe that's one we could spend a bit of time thinking about. If there's someone we just can't forgive. How is it that we can withhold forgiveness when we've been forgiven of so much? Shouldn't we treat every other human being on earth with mercy? Because God has been so merciful to us. 
How can we hold a grudge when God has been so unimaginably forgiving? Or even a grudge yet, because they still get heavy. Well, the king is justifiably angry. The unforgiving servant gets handed over to the jailers to be tortured. And you know who I think the jailers are that torture this guy? It's his resentments. It's his unforgiveness. It's that intrusive thinking that's constantly rehearsing what they want to say to the person that's hurt them. And those of us that refuse to forgive are tortured. We are tortured because it presses in and it weighs us down and we never do get to experience the freedom that Jesus came to offer. And how long will he live? 80 years, maybe. And the debt would still never be paid. You know, it, it's very strange that when you think you're bearing a grudge and showing bitterness, that you're making the other person have to pay. The other person often is clueless that you're even mad. You're not even on their radar screen while you stew and, and you know, rehearse what you'd say if you could get in their face. The reality is you are the one who's put yourself in prison and you are the one having to pay. So perhaps today you're struggling. You're struggling with resentment. You're struggling with joylessness. You've searched up and down and you're wondering, what's wrong with my life? Well, maybe go back and take a little inventory and figure out who you haven't forgiven. And that might give you a clue. I'm not having the intimacy with my family. I'm not having answered prayers. I don't have a spring in my step and a song in my heart. I'm stressed. I'm anxious. I've got blood pressure problems. I've got ulcers. And you know why? Often it's because there's a grudge or a grudgeette in your backpack. Maybe one of the reasons, and I'm not saying this is always the case, but it's often the case, is because you've given yourself a prison sentence when you say, I will never forgive him, or I will never forgive her. And then in verse 35, Jesus gives the clincher. This is the moral to the parable. He didn't make it difficult for us to get the point. But it's a hard one to accept if you are a grudge holder like me. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This sounds to me like learning to forgive and choosing to forgive is pretty essential. And we need it to be able to live a life covered by God's grace and righteousness. Well, I am a grace girl, and I hate behavior-based religion. Some of you know that about me. I hate it when people say, you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. I don't want to go there. But this sure sounds to me like God can't overlook our attitude when we refuse to forgive. And so we better start asking him to help us forgive, right? Would that be a good idea? Patsy Claremont describes it like this. 
I confess, sometimes I've taken a bath in wrath. I've soaked in it, lathered up in it, splashed around in it. I've lingered in it for days, months, and even years. The result is not unlike sitting in the tub too long. We shrivel up. We do not have the option of holding on to unforgiveness. And this is pretty serious business. We should be incredibly motivated to forgive. The final phrase of verse 35 where it says, Forgive your brother from your heart, means literally forgive wholeheartedly. Put your whole heart into this act of forgiving. Give it everything you've got. This needs to be our spiritual priority. A traveler was in Burma, and he crossed a river that was full of leeches who came up to his body and began to just cover him. And when he got out, he was infested with these blood-sucking leeches. Now, doesn't that just sound horrible? And we know that if the leeches are not removed, he will die. That they'll, they'll take all of his blood. So by natural instinct, he began to try to pull the leeches off, to pull them out and throw them off. But the natives began to cry to him, no, no, don't do that, no, don't do that. And he said, why? And they said, because if you forcefully pull them, some parts of the leeches will remain in your flesh, and they will become toxic and poisonous. Don't do that. So what should I do? The man said. Come, they say. They'd experienced this before. So they brought them to a huge soaking tub that they had made just for this purpose. And they poured in some water, and they threw in some herbs and some leaves and some flowers, and they said, go get in that tub and cover every part of your body except your nose coming out the top. And as he lowered himself into the tub and as he lay there, the leeches came off as he soaked and was submerged. Amazingly, one by one, these blood-sucking leeches began to gently fall off his flesh. You see, we want to force ourselves to forgive. And how's that working for you? Grit our teeth, and by the sheer act of will, we will forgive. We're trying to pull those leeches off our body. But I tell you, the only way for the leeches to release is for us to soak in a tub of God's love and to realize how much Jesus has already done for us. God has forgiven us so much that our lives are so full of his grace and his love that the leeches can't stand that bath, that bath in grace, and they finally fall off. So instead of taking a bath in wrath, take your bath in grace. I don't know about you, but how often do you need to do this? Every day. Every day. Every day somebody leaves me a grudge at to pick up. Even here. There's a grudge at to be found wherever I look, if I will. But you know, after I've soaked in grace, I learn not even to pick him up. 
And I even have the guts to get into the backpack and remove some. And as they get removed, my life gets better and my load gets lighter and I'm more able to focus on Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to every argument you're invited to. You can just leave them and not pick them up. I have a book that I highly recommend to you. A book that doesn't just tell you that you need to forgive, it tells you how. Um, And in your bulletin was a handout. This is a Cliff Notes version um, of, of the book. But if you read the Cliff Note version and you still want more, you know you need more, I um, really highly recommend Dick Tibbetts' book, Forgive to Live. He's from um, Florida Hospital, and they actually did clinical trials where they could teach people to forgive and their blood pressure would go down. And it would not only go down immediately, it would go down over time that a year later or two years later, after they had learned to forgive, their blood pressure would still be much reduced. So if you have high blood pressure, that might be a book you might want to read. It might really help. And what Dick Tibbetts and his team of psychologists and medical practitioners discovered is that the real danger zone of anger is not the blazing white hot, get in your face, throw something rage. But it's in that slowly simmering, never goes away, resentment. The word resentment means to feel again. And every time you resent something, you feel it over and over and over again. You do that damage to yourself every time you remember But if you learn to forgive, the damage stops. And you're not having to feel it again and again. Each time I allow my mind to dwell on a hurtful past experience, my body doesn't know that it's not happening in real time. It's medically proven that resentment makes you sick. So Dick Tibbetts and his research team found a way to teach people how to let go. Who wouldn't want to learn this skill? If Dick Tibbetts and his team could teach random samplings of patients at a hospital the principles of forgiveness, do you think Christians who have the Bible and the power of the Holy Spirit in their life might be able to learn to forgive too? Hmm. We have help. We have divine help to do this difficult thing if we just will, if we're just willing God commands us to forgive, and he never tells us to do something that's impossible. I truly believe that he will give us the ability to forgive our brother from the heart. If it hurts so badly that I cannot conjure up forgiveness in myself, I just pray that he'll make me willing someday, someday soon, to forgive. I am willing to be made willing. And sometimes I have to pray, God, forgive her until I'm ready. But please make me ready. Please help me to be ready to forgive. Well, the devil can put 
thoughts into our brains are like pop-ups on your computer and they get systematic where you know how your computer has this uncanny sense that whatever you've looked at yesterday they keep giving you the ads for it today I hate that it's like they're spying on me and I know it well the devil does that he knows just when you're vulnerable to have those pop-ups of resentment come at you the best result response when a resentment surfaces is just to get back into your tub of grace. Take your bath in grace. Remember Jesus. Remember him on the cross. Remember that he's forgiven you. And then you can ask for help. Dick Tibbetts asserts a powerful truth that many of us have not understood. Just because you remember and that painful memory is triggered does not mean you haven't forgiven. It just means you need to forgive again, maybe this time a little deeper. Forgiveness is not an event. It's a process. You don't get it done completely the first time. You have to keep going back to it. And slowly but surely, the bad feelings are dismissed as you choose to forgive. You have to choose repeatedly every time the memory comes to mind. And so you develop empathy, you think about the people, what their life might be like. It's like Jesus praying from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I would imagine that whoever is hurting you so much didn't really know what they were doing either. Another key is to think about God's glory and to think about the fact that if you could respond with a forgiving heart, it might actually bless the person who needs your forgiveness desperately. Forgiveness is reframing the past with the goal of recovering one's peace in the present and hope for the future, and that God will someday make all things beautiful. Well, we believe that God can and will take the hardest things in our lives and make them beautiful. It's an act of trust. It's an act of faith. It's an act of love. And after all God has given us, I think it's an act that's in our best interest to take. I'd like to finish with a true story. It's found in William Johnson's book, Glimpses of Grace. She climbed into our van as we headed for an orphanage in a nearby town. Carl Wilkins and I were going her direction, and the bus could, only, could not take her as far as she needed to go. As we bumped over the potholed road, I noticed a deep scar across her forehead and another across the back of her head. Carl noticed them, too. He knew the language, and he asked her to tell her story. During the recent political upheaval in Rwanda, in which thousands were killed, a man who had once been a member of the congregation where her husband was the pastor had come to their home to attack them. He killed her pastor husband and left her for dead with machete slashes across her face and head. When all was safe, her son came from hiding and rescued her. Months later, she came face to face with her attacker while shopping in a crowded marketplace. They each stood transfixed, staring at each other for a moment, 
unable to move. The man was shocked to see her alive. This pastor's wife, who he once had known well and whom he was sure he had killed, he never expected to see her face again. Would her husband also appear before him now? He began to sweat profusely, thinking that he was seeing a ghost. But she did not disappear. She just stood there in the market, looking back at him, her scars deep from his own machete. The horror of it all rushed over him. How could he have done such a thing? Would she turn him over to the police for trial? Many were now in prison in Rwanda for their incomprehensible behavior during those terrible weeks. His eyes seemed glued to her expression of recognition. He was unable to run. There was no escape. Other people in the market became aware that these people were looking at each other in this very strange way, and they watched to see what she would do. Perspiration rolled down her attacker's face and chest. He knew he'd been caught. He knew there was no excuse. She took him to her home, and she exchanged his sweat-drenched shirt with a clean one from her son's closet. She fed him lunch and then spoke the words that would set them both free. I don't know what else you've done or who else might accuse you, but as for me, I forgive you. Each time I remember that terrible day, I also will remember that I forgave you this day. She not only set the man free, she set herself free. Who deserves to be at the center of your life? Is it the one who has hurt you, the one who has done you wrong, or your precious Savior who gave his life to forgive you? Over and over again, you will need to choose Jesus. Put him first. Put him at the center of your thoughts, the center of your wholeheartedness. And over and over again, when you need help, you can say, Father, forgive me and teach me to forgive as you have forgiven me.